But when we sit down and speak to VCs and investors and they have this Western mindset based on what they read from the IFC or whoever, they don't understand that we have to create solutions that take advantage of the digital journey that some of our customers are still on before they can make the leap across the digital divide and be able to do everything on a digital transactional basis. Welcome back to the Global Startup Movements, where every week we bring you conversations, insights, and innovation highlights from emerging startup ecosystems all over the world. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's episode is a part one of a two-part miniseries that we recorded in partnership with the Impact Leaders Club, a global group of impact investors, social entrepreneurs, and change makers focused on scalable solutions to end planetary suffering. This session features myself and two other experts, Viola Llewellyn, the co-founder of Avamba Solutions, and Jude Moore, a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development here in D.C., uh, and previously the Liberian Minister of Public Works. During this talk, the three of us break down challenges and solutions needed for infrastructure in emerging economies around the world. As has been a common theme on the show, infrastructure is a key component that stands between most emerging economies, and thriving startup ecosystems. This problem encompasses road networks, electricity grids, ICT infrastructure, financial and credit infrastructure, as well as real estate. In part one, we're diving into innovations, specifically in construction and financial infrastructure. Be sure to join us next Tuesday here on the Global Startup Movement for part two, where we cover roads, ICT, and electricity, And thank you so much to David Casey and Christina Takmanova for helping me organize this and bringing in the great group of investors that we had on the call. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy. My name is Andrew Berkowitz. I am the executive producer and host of the Global Startup Movement podcast. Really over the past four years now, uh, I bootstrapped this podcast from scratch in my parents' basement into a globally syndicated media property. And we're really one of the leading independent podcast platforms that covers uh, tech and innovation industries and emerging economies around the world. And really the whole reason I started this podcast was because I saw you know, s- seriously gaping insight gaps when it comes to uh, tech entrepreneurship and startups outside of the, the big tech hubs of the world. Over the past two years now, I've become particularly focused on or particularly interested on what's happening uh, in Africa's startup ecosystems. And so I booked my first one-way ticket to Kenya back in 2017. Um, and that was, that was a fantastic experience for me and really confirmed the, the hunch that I had that was building inside that there actually is a lot happening in the Africa startup ecosystem and in the entrepreneurial ecosystem over there, despite this kind of you know, one-sided, not necessarily true narrative that uh, we're being fed by our mainstream media here in the West when it comes to Africa. Um, and so, you know, back in 2017, when I, when I made that first trip to Kenya that year, I believe African startups raised about $200 million in total venture capital. And then in 2018, they raised about uh, $725 million and now leading up into this past year where African startups raised about $1.35 billion. 
with fintech being the by far the most dominant sector. But I won't go too much into that because we have uh, the wonderful Viola Llewellyn on who will be discussing that particular piece in a bit. But when we talk about tech and startups in Africa, we refer to the acronym, the Kings of Africa, which I learned from one of my friends, Eric Osiakwan. Um, and really the big startup hubs that have been emerging have been Kenya, Ivory Coast, Nigeria, Ghana, and South Africa. We've really expanded that acronym to Kings Me over the past year to include Morocco, Egypt, and Ethiopia, which are all kind of emerging uh, in of themselves as, as huge startup hubs in, in, in the global startup ecosystem. And so just to give everyone on the call a bit of context about Africa. Um, so you have North Africa, which is a little bit more uh, similar to uh, kind of the Middle East and the Gulf region countries, and then Sub-Saharan Africa, which is you know, everything below that can really be split up into Francophone Africa and Anglophone Africa. And Francophone was, you know, French speaking was colonized by the French and then Anglophone uh, is the English speaking part of Africa. And, you know, really there's, there's been this whole narrative of Africa leapfrogging landline phone infrastructure to mobile phones. And we always kind of point to M-Pesa mobile money in Kenya as like the, the big success story within this broader narrative um, of fintech in Africa. But I mean, at the end of the day, the reality is most SMEs in Africa, which make up about you know, 90% of businesses, still transact mostly in cash. The NFC technology that underlie credit cards are still expensive, very expensive for the average African SME to be able to afford. And so within this whole narrative, I, I started to kind of see this really disturbing insight gap that was was playing out in the fact that while startups in Africa, you know, it, it, it is a way forward. It is one of the ways forward. It kind of sits next to this broader conversation of kind of new ideas and innovation in development models and in infrastructure that, you know, I just is, is frankly just not really happening. And, you know, it's it's kind of like an unspoken truth here in DC that like, the World Bank's development model is just not really working. And, you know, I'm personally become pretty tired of a lot of these academics that we have in DC that um, are very smart. They have a lot of models and information, but that doesn't mean that they actually have any idea of how to actually implement things. Um, and so, I mean, at the end of the day, Africa's population is projected to double in size by 2050. Um, it's going to account for more than half of the global population growth over the next two decades. Um, and so unless we have some actual scalable solutions for infrastructure challenges and some of the current development challenges, it's just not going to be a great situation. And so, you know, I'm not really one to complain about a problem without putting forward a solution to that problem. And so when all of this was kind of playing out in my mind and I started to see this, um, the separation between the startup world and the development finance world. That was around the time when uh, the farm bill was signed here in the U S which legalized hemp. Um, and so when I saw that headline, that kind of put me down this rabbit hole of all the uses that the hemp plant can, can actually introduce in like, and that covers fabric replacements, concrete replacements, plastic replacements. Um, and this is kind of in addition to all the medicinal and recreational aspects um, of, of CBD. And so I started to realize that, well, 
if we're able to scale up hemp cultivation infrastructure in Africa, that can be a serious solution to introduce some sustainable and scalable solutions to Africa's growing construction and textile industries. Um, and Africa actually is the ideal place to, to scale up hemp infrastructure because there's an abundance of low-cost land. There's about 200 million hectares of uncultivated land right now in Africa. You have an abundance of low-cost labor and a much more relaxed regulatory climate than we have here in the U.S. And so Africans, Africa's construction industry is currently one of the fastest-growing regions globally. It's expected to increase, I believe it's about 7% per year uh, over the next five years. And construction in a lot of African countries has actually become a key, um, a key piece of their GDP and accounts for 10 to 15% of GDP in a lot of African countries. And now when, when you look at that, we, we do have to bring up the C word. And actually Brookings listed the C word as a top four priority for Africa in the 2020s. And uh, I'm, I'm talking, of course, about climate change. And, you know, when it comes to actually industrial scale hemp, it's actually been proven to absorb more CO2 per hectare than any forest or commercial crop in existence. And most importantly, the CO2 actually becomes uh, permanently bonded within the hemp fiber, even when it's processed for use as a concrete or for textiles. And so one hectare of industrial hemp can actually absorb 22 tons of CO2. And since it's possible to grow two crops per year, one hectare of growing hemp is able to absorb 44 tons of CO2 per year. And so when you look at that and compare it to, say, like, like cement, one ton of manufactured cement releases 850 kilograms of CO2 into the atmosphere. And if you use hemp instead of cement, you're able to save 80% of that, which will equate to between five to 8,000 pounds of CO2 emissions per two-story house that you construct. So that's just some of my reasoning why I think hemp can be a seriously powerful and scalable solution for many infrastructure problems in emerging economies as long as we are able to scale up cultivation and processing infrastructure. But I am coming up on my 10 minutes. So now I guess I will pass it off Viola Llewellyn, who is the president and co-founder of Obama Solutions, a serious player in the fintech ecosystem in Africa. And she'll talk a little bit about some of the challenges on, um, you know, the, the union economics not scaling of banking infrastructure in Africa and kind of what Avamba is doing to, to solve that. Thank you, Andrew. And thanks for sharing what is a very edgy business model that raises all kinds of questions that probably belong in another conference call. But I am very fortunate to have heard you talk about this and I can see the synergies between different areas of Africa's business landscape. But I want to address something that you were talking about in terms of fintech, and you threw the ball to me. In terms of Africa's, um, the infrastructure that is available there, it's always very curious to me how much focus has been put on fintech payment solutions, mobile wallets, without much conversation about what are we actually buying with the money, the currency in these wallets, how does that connect between the digital and the analog world, which still exists? There is still a digital divide that is likely to get wider if we don't take a comprehensive look at how these solutions are being used. And he's right. I've had the chance to talk to a lot of the World Bank IMF 
IFC type individuals who create a lot of academic papers that the startup community uses to try to create businesses that might meet a certain threshold in order to attract capital and sometimes to build solutions that are predicated upon what was read in the book but it's got absolutely nothing absolutely nothing to do with either the last miler or in our case the missing middle of Africa's middle class that is looking to create generational wealth that can be transferred from one one group to another and maybe or maybe not using a mobile wallet, but certainly needs to be measurable and available for further distribution. So from an infrastructure standpoint, we are always focused on how can we use trade versus fintech, so we call it trade tech, in order to accelerate the velocity of capital within um, a business community, or in this case, on a cross-border basis, because Africa, from a sub-Saharan standpoint, does stand to take advantage of what has happened in, uh, with COVID-19. We're seeing the shutdown of various manufacturing plants and the supply chains related to wholesale and retail in Africa. And we have created a product called Bank Partner, Growth as a Service, and many others that have, in the last few years, addressed being able to buy the goods of customers and help them to distribute them and approximate almost an Amazon uh, fulfillment type model along with an Airbnb structure where we link all of the empty warehouses in Cameroon and even in Ivory Coast to know where the spaces are when we import customers' goods. Infrastructure on our continent is sorely lacking in a lot of things that we take for granted in the Western world, that is true. But when we sit down and speak to VCs and investors and they have this Western mindset based on what they read from the IFC or whoever, they don't understand that we have to create solutions that take advantage of the digital journey that some of our customers are still on before they can make the leap across the digital divide and be able to do everything on a digital transactional basis. There is still space for making Africa a destination for investment if you can take those individuals on the right journey, which means you have to be aware of culture and how business is conducted and get them to the point where they can say, yes, I use bank accounts often. Yes, I'm using a credit card. But in actual fact, we know we're leapfrogging credit cards directly to exchanging credit or capital across these digital platforms in order to satisfy business transactions. So what our role has been is to use alternative risk models that do embed culture to measure the risk of customers and take away the focus from traditional credit scoring where majority of African um, fast-moving consumable good importers just don't belong because not all of them are using bank accounts the way the IFC thinks that they do. Between most people on this call, I'm pretty sure that there is enough context to stand up a white paper on its own to say, this is where the gap between the academic occurs and the realities are concerned. With COVID-19 right now, infrastructure is completely upended and we're not able to do social distancing. But it means that we have to create a compelling reason for our customers and customers to be to see the relevance of digital in their world. On an infrastructure basis, if you can't tell the individual who pounds for through every day why they need to learn what digital currency means, then you're not gonna reach that individual. We have to create nuance and context when we're building infrastructure. So for us, um, we have moved past funding customers directly 
we see that there is value in taking these transactions to banks and say, look, use our products, allow us to teach you how to measure risk for individuals who don't usually fall within your, your uh, sweet spot. And let's put inventory at the heart of these transactions so that from an infrastructure standpoint, we can close the gaps in where these transactions fall down and create what we call non-performing loan transactions. Let's find a way to buy and import goods for customers. But we all know as per what uh, Andrew has been talking about, might not be able to import goods from many from other places. So we're beginning to see how the role of manufacturing can be at the heart again of these transactions and at the heart of infrastructure development. This brings a whole bunch of opportunities and it also brings its own problems. But as we know, Africa is built on creating solutions for problems in order to create viable economic systems. So I look forward to those problems and I look forward to learning from other people. But right now, my company is focused on sustaining the supply chains for our wholesale and retail customers who sell things like prayer mats, construction equipment, candles, back to school goods, um, fast moving consumable goods, non-perishables, and uh, agribusiness products such as tractors and, and the like. There are lots of things that we don't touch. I don't know that we will ever be involved in cannabis. Probably not because we are actually a Sharia compliant platform, which works for the trade sector, not because of religion, but because of what it does economically. So at the risk of just rambling into all the areas that are my favorite to talk to, I just want to summarize that there are different players right now on the continent that view infrastructure from different angles. And you absolutely need all of these diversified opinions at the table at the same time to make sure that when all boats rise with the tide, everybody is moving in a direction that can profit and benefit all of the players on our, on our continent. We believe in trade. It is related to fintech. It's the second layer of what you're doing with all of that money that's running around in uh, mobile wallets to what are people buying and how can we quantify it. And we also want to have a little bit of a focus about the fact that the startups have been the darling of the African investment story. We now need to turn the page and talk about those that have crossed the chasm and have become post-startup and where are the products, the tools, the capital and the infrastructure to take businesses who are in that three to five year gap and move them into sustainable champions as they continue to pivot to address the new challenges and opportunities that come from having new products in the marketplace, bigger businesses, more success, the growing middle class and everything that comes with a true growth story that isn't about, oh, look how cute Africa is in its colorful floral skirts. Everybody's a startup. The whole thing is terribly sweet. Uh, let's try to make sure that we don't accidentally keep it like that because that's where the profits are, but be bold enough to engender the infrastructure to move these startups and everything that they need into a post-startup world where we're talking about companies who have legacy over the next 20, 30, 50, and 100 years. So digital can do that. Partnership across these various infrastructure gaps, definitely. And making sure that the technologies and the business systems that we have also tackle policy in the regulatory environment to support that infrastructure in such a way that 
the consumer needs are driving the regulation versus the punitive impact of policy in the hands of individuals that don't truly understand what's being done. So that's what we do. That's my focus personally as a business leader in this environment. That's what I raise capital in order to resolve. And I'm looking forward to hearing what everybody else has to say, especially as it relates to the long-term impacts and development of infrastructure and the players that are involved in this particular game. There is a serious gap right now in the kind of Series B, Series C stage for African startups um, that, I mean, ideally the World Bank and IFC should be filling and they're really, really not. Um, but what's interesting to note, what's interesting to note is that a lot of the narrative around fintech in Africa back in 2016 going into 2017 was fintech is going to replace the banks. That's Whereas, it's, exactly, that's not, that's not going to happen. That was never going to happen. But now that I think the narrative in the broader ecosystem has shifted to where fintech needs to augment the banks. Because at the end of the day, fintech's disrupting the banks at like, I don't think that would even be a good thing because the banks provide a lot of jobs in Africa. Um, and so, you know, I, think I don't know if I would agree with that because one of the things that we discovered as we pivoted to where we are, Andrew, is we found that by asking the simple question of what are the, um, the ambitions of these businesses, where do they get money and what are they doing with it, told us quite plainly that banks are not concerned with the growth of businesses, they are concerned with revenue from deposit accounts. Mm. That means that these deposit accounts and the business of banks, which is very risk averse, does, is more concerned with ensuring that people either default on loans because loans are written to mortgage land and houses, or that banks can continue to ensure that payday loans, salary loans, and things that get um, fees from services versus growth with business capital that is lent to businesses happens. If you go to a bank today in Africa and say, as, as we've done on an experimental basis, time and time again, I need to borrow $100,000. They're going to say you need $100,000 blocked in your bank account before we can give that to you. That is not lending. If you go to the average African and say, I want you to invest in this particular startup, they're going to ask you questions about guarantees. That's not investing. The psychology of investing and risk is the gap in Africa. Mm. People are asking for guarantees because they're afraid of loss. They don't know how to measure risk. The genome for success and the risk models for Africans and I shouldn't even be using that language. It's really town to town, city to city, country to country, tribe to tribe has never been documented or digitized. You can't go to Germany and say, here, we're going to use this uh, Cypriot risk model to measure your German customers in your bank. There would be a bruja. But we continue to import wholesale these technologies and risk models and credit models from all around the world and overlay it into banks who are using various core banking systems that have got nothing to do with the human beings that walk in and out of that door looking to build a business that is domiciled in Africa and has been ring-fenced within their own country or community because the infrastructure for cross-border trade or the harmonization of banking to allow portability has not been addressed. My goodness me, you can't even take a contract on a PDF sign it electronically and send it over to Kenya from Ivory Coast. The two do not mix. So you're siloed in where you are. Until these 
these silos are broken. And until we create the connective tissue to put all of these together, banking will still just be a repository activity with a favoritism towards commercial activities versus serving the underserved small and medium enterprises and the informal sector with what they really need. And what they really need is the ability to grow businesses or get access to inventory or get handheld into international business waters with the ability to still have that portability of success and have it counted against GDP by financial inclusion. That's the main challenge as far as I'm concerned. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app and join us next week when we dive into part two of our mini series on the future of infrastructure and emerging economies recorded in partnership with the Impact Leaders Club.